I don't think there's many other churches in uh, Ontario where the uh, screen bounces up and down like that. But uh, what a joy it is to be able to meet in the way that we do. And in a funny sort of way, we're closer to uh, nature. We're closer to the hand of God than uh, most other churches are because we know when it's cold, we know when it's warm, we know when it's raining. And it's a joy to be able to see that our God is indeed a God of climate change. I don't know if you've noticed that before, but we thank him for it. So Britain declared war on Nazi Germany on the 3rd of September in 1939. <clears throat> and then for a period of eight months, absolutely nothing happened. No bombs were dropped. No aircraft flew over. It was a time of relative peacefulness. People had been issued gas masks and they carried around in little boxes, but nobody had to use them. The name that was coined for this peaceful period in the history of World War II was the phony war. The word phony meant, you know, it's not true, it's not going to happen. And the problem with things that are phony like that is that you tend to sit into a, a sense of comfort and you get the impression that nothing bad's going to happen. And, and you get the idea that you're lulled into a false sense of security. And I want you to think for a moment that that could be your life. You know, you come to church, you hear all these things. The pastor tells you all the things that are going on. The other people in the church tell you what a terrible world it is, the sin that is around me. And you're thinking to yourself, well, actually, things are pretty good for me. You know, I've got a car or a truck. I've got a few bob in the bank. I've got a job. I've got the prettiest girlfriend or the handsomest hunk there is. Sorry, lads, I wasn't looking at anyone in particular. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, life's pretty good. Do I have to be really worried about death? About bad things happening? About things going wrong? I'm healthy, I'm fit. And you could be lulled into thinking that this is what life's going to be all the way through. In fact, it's never going to end. Young men particularly, have you noticed how invincible young men are? You know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, you know, you've just got your license, you're driving your trunk, you're going fast. Everything's fine. I'm going to live forever. So at this point, I could say to you, well, you know, that isn't how it always works out. Things don't always work out that way. I could try and frighten you into breaking this false sense of security that you have. You know, are you going to make it home tonight? You probably will. You'll probably wake up in the morning. It's not a dead cert, but probably. I could go down that route and try and convince you. But I don't need to do that. Because God will do that. The difference is how we respond to God's leading. So in Britain at the time the phony war was happening, well, you know, who, where's Germany? Where's Hitler? And then suddenly on the 10th of May 1940... Germany invades the Netherlands. 
and everything in Europe changed. And from that point onward, war proper broke out. The Blitz, as it was called in London, was horrendous. Vast parts of the city were destroyed as German bombers came over and dropped their bombs indiscriminately. Women, children, killed. And similarly in Germany, the night of a thousand bombers when Dresden was taken out and a firestorm that started, over 130,000 civilians in one night died because of those thousand bombers that were sent over. And life changed. And Peter, he's written this to let us know that life changes. We might think that we've got everything sorted, and Peter says this, he says, you've got to be ready because there are fiery trials. These are the words he uses in the beginning part of his letter. There are fiery trials coming, and a fiery trial doesn't sound good to me. It doesn't sound like the sort of thing I want to be involved in. And yet Peter says, they're on the way. They're on the way to the church. They're on the way to you. They're coming. And so he wanted the church, made up of people like you and I, those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be prepared. And preparation is one of the things that human beings are never particularly good at. Well, you'd think to yourself, so what's Peter going to suggest? How does he suggest that we should be prepared? Perhaps he's going to suggest that we should go out and buy a sword or a gun. I was reading an article about it. Is it an AK-15, which is the rifle that is used? I, I see today there were two mass shootings in America, one killing three people and another one killing four people in different cities. And there's this one gun, which is the favorite for the mass shooter to get hold of. Does he say, go out and buy one of those? Keep yourself armed to the teeth? Is, is, that, is that the preparation that we make? No, it's not. What does Peter say? Let's turn to the scriptures. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due course, Casting all your care upon him. Why? For he cares for you. So what does he tell us to do? To humble ourselves. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because humility is not a strong point for many of us. Humbling ourselves is the last thing that's on our mind. And Peter says, humble yourselves. Well, this can't be right. He's telling us to become a doormat. You know, when the world doesn't like you, let it walk all over you. But naturally speaking, that's not what we want. It's not what we're good at. And it's not what we see so often in the way that people react 
to the situations and to the circumstances that come across us. And during the last few years, we've seen some of these issues with COVID as it came through. Uh, Joe and I went out for a meal. <laughs> it's our date night last night, and we had a really good meal, and there was another couple on a table, and they, they were brave enough to bring their kids. We're not brave enough to bring our kids. And they had two really well-behaved children. And uh, the lady started talking about the fact that she'd had the last baby in, in, during COVID and just made the point you know, how terrible it was. These aren't believers that we were talking to. These were just people that were saying, you know, this is just an awful way to live. And I think when you think about the way churches were treated and, and the things that we had to feel the pressure under, we began to feel a bit about what Peter was talking about. But only a little bit. Peter, we want to fight. And that reminds me, that's exactly what Peter did. Remember the night? They'd gone to the garden. Jesus knew that Judas was coming. He was going to be betrayed. And Peter gets his sword out. As I said, he's either a great swordsman or a really rubbish one. <laughs> Depends how you look at it, doesn't it? And he slices off the high priest's ear. And now Peter says, be humble. What a change has taken place in his life. Do you see the way the gospel has worked in his life? He's gone from this guy who was impetuous and reacted and did things the way he wanted to. I can save you. And Jesus has put the sword away. And Jesus heals the high priest's servant's ear. You see, our natural reaction is not humility. They're not going to tell me what to do. They're not going to tell our church what to do. But Peter has learned his lesson. And he, as he writes his epistle, these two little letters, he wants us to learn from his mistakes. The things he did wrong. And he wants to help us in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ who loved us and died for us. But it's not easy. Think of others above yourself. Again, it's not a natural reaction. We tend to look after ourselves. We want to make sure we're okay. But this is the response that God gives us. Now back in chapter 2, uh, and three, uh, Peter has explained the various groups that he has been speaking to, and he uses the word submission a lot, to submit to. In 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17, Christians are told to submit to ruling authorities, and immediately we begin to feel a bit tense about that, don't we? Because we've seen how the ruling authorities can suddenly turn on us. And they do. Canada has written in law, at least in one place, that the Bible is but myths and fairy tales. 
And do you know how many MPs voted against that? Shall I tell you? Not one. Not one. And yet, God graciously says, and the commandment to us, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now, of course, if we're told that we can't worship God, that's a different matter. And then 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 25, Slaves, submit to your masters. Servants, be submissive to your masters. And we can think of the situation at work, you know. I'm not submitting to that guy. He's a fool. But as believers, we're to be different. And then we've looked at this, and I, I don't want to raise it again too much, but 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7, wives, submit to your husbands. The problem is, is that we're not generally known as people who want to submit to anyone or anything because we like to have it all worked out ourselves. And then, in these verses, Peter tells the younger Christians to submit to the older believers. Now, please notice that Peter is not asking the younger believers to submit to the older believers purely out of respect because physical age is no guarantee of spiritual maturity. Just before our service started, somebody asked me and said, so the Bible says that we start off as baby Christians, as baby believers, but how long do we stay as babies drinking milk? It's a good question, isn't it? Because some people don't seem to have moved on in their Christian life from the day that they came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 50 years later, you're none the wiser. Everything seems to be the same. So physical age is no guarantee of Christian maturity, but we are told to grow. The word of God enables us to grow. And we should be people that are prepared to move on from milk to meat. Too often age wars break out in churches, don't they? Older people resisting change and the younger people resisting the older people. But there are times when it is good to listen to those who are older and wiser and who have experienced a lot more in their Christian life. And there's nothing more exciting than talking to a saint who's lived a long life and they're able to remind you and tell you about how faithful God has been to them throughout their life. So Peter is saying here in these verses, submit yourselves to your elders. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. And so Peter brings a twofold solution. He says, number one, all believers, young and old, submit to each other. And then he says, number two, all should submit to God. Yes, all of you be submissive to one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So something else has been introduced here, the word pride. And as I read this section of scripture, I can't get out of my mind the fact that on the night Jesus was betrayed, 
He was in the upper room with the disciples and he clothed himself with humility. How did he do that? He took a towel and he wrapped it around his waist and then he went to each of their feet, including Judas, and he washed their feet because Jesus was clothed in humility. And we see that so clearly. So Peter calls us firstly to be humble when we face trials. So we need to ask ourselves, what is true humility? Well, it's not demeaning ourselves. It's not thinking poorly of ourselves. What is it? It's not thinking about ourselves at all. And this is how we're to fight and to stand the fiery trials that are being brought to us. To not think of ourselves at all. But of course we understand very quickly that we can never be truly humble and submissive to others if we have not first of all submitted ourselves to God. Our text calls us To have that resistance for pride. God resists the proud. And Peter of course is quoting from Proverbs 3 verse 34. Why does God resist the proud? Because God hates the sin of pride. It was pride that turned Lucifer into Satan. It was pride a desire to be like God that stirred Eve to take the forbidden fruit. And in John, in his first epistle, chapter 2 and verse 16, and if you've been able to come to the Bible studies every other week, you'll know that we've studied this. John talks about the pride of life as being evidence of worldliness. Friends, there's only one antidote to pride. It's the grace of God. And we receive the grace of God when we yield ourselves to him. Completely. And once we do this, the evidence that we have yielded to Christ is that we yield to each other. We think of others more than we do ourselves. Now that's what a true child of God is like. One reason that we have cares and worries in the world and the concerns of life is because we have an enemy. And whilst the phony war was taking place, some people forgot about the enemy. Some people forgot that just over the channel, there was this country that was a simmering pot of Nazi ideology and it was going to cause problems for the whole of Europe but because nothing happened because people were happy because the sun was shining and it rained when it was supposed to rain and people were able to go about their daily lives in some sort of orderly fashion they forgot about the enemy And in our Christian lives as well, we forget sometimes about the enemy. 
as the serpent, Satan deceives 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. And as the, as the lion, as we have recorded here in these verses, Satan devours. That's what lions do. They eat meat. They tear it apart. The word Satan means adversary. And the word devil means the accuser, the slanderer. And the recipients of this letter, as Peter wrote, as he writes to us, had already experienced the attacks of slander there back in chapter 4, verse 4 and verse 14. And now they meet the lion in their fiery trials. And Peter gave them several practical instructions to help them get victory over their adversaries. And here's the first one. Respect him. Now you might think to yourself, hold on a moment. How can we respect Satan? I'll tell you. When you come across someone who's dangerous, you need to respect what's dangerous about them. Now some of you know that uh, I struggle with practical things. And on one occasion, many years ago, uh, we had to have a job done with a big electrical panel. And it, had, it, was, it was a building that had 400 and some odd volts coming into it. And then it was divided out between the, 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 the building. Europe is different to the power supply here. And I meet this little guy and he comes in and he's got one of those belts around him with all his tools hanging and dangling. And... Uh, I look at this box and he opens the door and there's little lights showing where power is moving and stuff. And it's all live. And big warning on the door that says, warning, 415 volts. So I, I looked at him and I said, aren't you scared? Aren't you worried? As he puts his screwdriver in amongst all these bare wires... I said, what's the secret? And he looked at me, do you know what he said? He said, respect electricity. And then you can handle it. Respect electricity. And so that's the first thing that we need to do. Respect him because he is dangerous. I've got Adrian here who does lots of the fiddling of things like this. So I respect him when he handles all the things and keeps the tent running and all the rest of it and others who help him. Satan is a dangerous enemy. He is a serpent who can bite. And he bites when we least expect it. He's a destroyer and an accuser. Revelation 12:9 so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. You want to know why the world is like it is? Satan deceives it. People believe lie after lie after lie. He does have power, intelligence, and he has a host of demons who assist him in his attacks, particularly on God's people. Read Ephesians 6. He is a formidable enemy. And I remind you that we never joke about Satan. 
We never joke about him, we never ignore him, and we never underestimate his ability. The scriptures tell us to be sober-minded, to have clear heads. Our minds need to be under control when it comes to our conflict with Satan. And a part of this soberness includes not blaming everything on Satan. Sometimes people come up and they, they see Satan behind every bush. Everything that goes wrong in their life, a flat tire, Satan's responsible. No, he's not. It's the nail you've just driven over. While it's true that Satan can inflict physical sickness and pain, read Luke 13, verse, uh, verse 16. Read the whole of the book of Job. But we have no biblical authority for casting out demons of flat tires. Second, recognize him. Now this is an interesting point, isn't it? Because if somebody's in disguise, you don't always see them. I can't remember where it was I was talking about uh, during the Second World War that spies... Um, where are we? Uh, was it on... Uh, yes, it was on Thursday, I think. Uh, so spies from Germany that were infiltrating the Netherlands, you know, they, the language has got a lot of similarities. And uh, the, the Dutch resistance would get hold of the guy they thought was a spy and sit him down in a chair and ask him to pronounce some unpronounceable Dutch place name. And that was how they determined whether he was real or not. You see, we have to recognize Satan. And we can become so blinded. Because he's subtle. And suddenly we can allow him into our lives because things seem right. But remember, he is a deceiver and a liar. John 8, 44, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. And so we're told in the scriptures to be vigilant, to keep our eyes open, to be always on guard. Because remember, his strategy is counterfeit. According to the parable of the tares, whenever God plants a true Christian, Satan seeks to plant a counterfeit. Matthew 13. He would deceive us if it were not for the word of God and for the spirit of God. 1 John 2 again and how we thank the Lord for his uh, word there. The better we know the word of God, the keener our spiritual senses are to detect Satan at work. Thirdly, resist him. This means that we take our stand on the word of God and we refuse to be moved. We don't compromise. Again, Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13 tells us to stand and to withstand and to stand again. You see, unless we stand, we cannot withstand, can we? What are our weapons? Our weapons are the word of God and prayer. Again, Ephesians 6. And our protection is the complete armor of Jesus Christ, of God, that is provided for us. We resist him in faith. That is our faith in God, just as David took his stand against Goliath. And he trusted in the name of Jehovah. So we take our stand in the name of Jesus Christ.
A word of caution, never discuss things with Satan. You might think that sounds strange, but there are times that we can let our our guard down. Loose lips sink ships. Satan isn't able to know what's in our mind unless we tell him. Also, never try to fight Satan in your own way. Resist him the way Jesus did, which is with the word of God, Matthew 4. And never get the idea that this battle is just your battle. What do the scriptures say here? Resist him steadfast in the face, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brothers in the world. We're not alone. We pray for one another. We encourage one another in the Lord Jesus. And we must remember our personal victories will help others. Just as their victories help us. You see, if Peter had obeyed these two instructions the night that Jesus was arrested, he wouldn't have gone to sleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wouldn't have attacked Malchus or denied the Lord. You see, he did not take the Lord's warnings seriously. In fact, Peter argued with them. He said, I'll never, I'll never deny you. Nor did he recognize Satan when the adversary inflated his ego with pride. Told him he didn't have to watch and pray. And then incited him to use his sword. Had Peter listened to the Lord, he would have resisted the enemy. He would have escaped the failures that he fell into. So both Peter and James gave the same formula for success, which of course is submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. James 4, 7. You see, before we can stand against Satan, there's something we have to do. And it's very simply this. We have to bow before God. Have you this evening bowed and submitted your life yourself to God have you called out to God for his salvation through Jesus Christ have you repented changed your mind about God have you changed your mind about the sin in your life have you changed your mind about Jesus and everything that he has done for you have you believed in the Lord Jesus as your saviour, not just as a good guy in history who taught us a lot about how to live our lives in a good and gracious way, but as your saviour. Have you believed that he died on the cross just for you? And he's dealt with your sin. And he's given you his righteousness. That's the belief that we have to have. Peter resisted the Lord and he ended up submitting to Satan. Don't do the same. Bow before God. Receive his salvation.